I'm ready to eat. I uh, know, I'm starving. Now Christina's single because she tried poor Marvin. Oh, I've got a headache. Your feet are too cold. Why can't I do what I want? Because you're just seven years old. Hey, Jimmy tried to hit me. Keep your hands to yourself. Honey, I need you to get these books off the shelf. I don't have time to talk right now. Good, because I didn't need you anyhow. Why can't things just go my way? Everything fell apart today. This relationship is going nowhere. I'm walking out because I've had it up to here. I don't know why I get no respect. All the kids are gone. There's nobody left. I love you, dear. Want to go for a walk? What would they say if these walls could talk? All right, all right. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. We are so excited to be here today to finish yeah. up our series, If These Walls Could Talk, by talking about marriage. Yes. Because who doesn't want a better marriage? Everyone wants a better marriage, but who wants the ultimate marriage? Anybody? Yes. Anybody well, Annie and I are going to take you through our guide, the step-by-step -step guide to the ultimate marriage. But mm. before we get into that, I want to give you a little background experience with our experience with marriage. Mm -hmm. Andy here is drawing over two years of two marriage long experience. Two years. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, mm -hmm. Chris here yes. is still single. Yes. Um, which, Chris, you know, I think actually gives you a unique perspective on marriage. Yes, yeah. you know, being single for 23 years has just given me this look into mm. marriage that if I was married, Andy, mm. I would not have. It's true, it's um, true. So I think I've got a lot of gold nuggets mm. of wisdom to share here today with everybody. Yeah. Um, so, Andy, can we go ahead? Can we yeah. jump into yeah. jump into uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we all want the ultimate marriage. But how do we get there? How do we do it? <laughs> I'm going to show you right uh -huh. here. Work. 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 And how is that how we get there? I'll tell you why. Because a marriage takes work. Mm. Got some silent people in here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hitting home, I can tell. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing. We've taken the word work and we've made it into an acrostic. We've yeah. broken it down for you. So W in the word work stands for work. work. Yes. And this one's yeah. really geared towards the ladies, because ladies, you're going to have a lot of work to do lots in marriage. Lots of work, lots of work. That's yeah. very true. I, as the husband, when I get home from a long day of work, I just want to sit down in a recliner mm. with a sandwich and a soda, oh, yeah. seat sandwich soda, just like that. And you ladies have to be on top of that for us mm -hmm. husbands. Listen, listen, it's all about gender equality, though. Yes. There yes, is a yes, lot yes. of work for the man in the marriage, too. Absolutely. Take, for example, the lawn, Oh, Chris. the lawn. Wow. It takes a lot of work to pick up the phone and hire somebody to mow your lawn for you. Absolutely. Yes. Andy, yeah. that was great. That was great. Mm -hmm. Let's Go ahead, let's move on to O. Okay. O in the word work stands for Olay. Olay. Olay is a Latin word that yes, means bravo or job well done. Yeah. It's all about encouragement. Yes. Chris, I can't tell you how many times my wife has been washing the dishes and I've been sitting there watching her wash the dishes and I've wow. said, honey, you are doing an excellent job on those pots and pans. Olay, my love, bravo. That yeah. is beautiful. Guys, yeah. if you will do this tonight, Instant dividends, mm -hmm. I promise. Yeah. All right, mm -hmm. let's go ahead. Let's move on to R. R in the mm. word work stands for really yes. try. Andy? Uh, yes. All right, you got to really try. Okay. All right, moving on. Number K, okay. number K. K stands for quality time. Quality, quality time. time. <laughs> yes. This is a really yeah. important one, okay? We have to spend that quality yes, time with absolutely. ourselves. And I know our lives are busy, I know. So I've broken mm -hmm. down 24 hours in a day to yes. help you out here. We've got time for work, work. sleep, yes. sports, naps, video games. And yeah. Andy, what is this small sliver right here? I'm glad you asked. This is the 
five-minute sweet spot of quality time that you're going to want to spend with your spouse. Mm -hmm. Chris, it is not about quantity. It is about quality. Oh, that's right. See, guys, if you will do this every day, you're going to create this sense of mystery Mm. in your marriage. And women love mystery. One day you'll get to your 50th wedding Mm -hmm. anniversary. You'll be sitting across the table from your wife. Mm -hmm. She's going to look up at you and she's going to say, who is this man? That's mystery. The mystery is still there. And this is what we call the marriage onion. You start slowly ripping back layer by layer. And every layer you rip back, Mm. the more weeping you have. And the more weeping you have, the closer you are to the ultimate marriage. There it is. It's pretty simple, really. That's our guide to the ultimate marriage. If you have any feedback on our presentation, please email Patrick Garcia at pgarcia at cccgo.com. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Don't email me, all right? (laughs) Hey, uh, glad you're with us. If you're tuning in right now online or at Crossroads West, we are thrilled you have uh, taken some time out of your day. We're gonna uh, wrap this series up that we kicked off at the beginning of this month where we've been talking about the kind of house and home and important relationships that God really intends for us to experience in life. And, And we thought we'd end today by talking about something called intimacy. Okay, now this is something more than what you think or whatever comes to mind, okay? Believe it or not, we have all been made and wired for intimacy, yet I would bet that very few of us are really experiencing the kind of intimacy that God intends for us to uh, live out in this life. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at what it's gonna take for us to reclaim intimacy in this life. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one right in front of you or in the seat below you. Uh, 1 Corinthians can be found towards the back of the Bible uh, in between the books of Romans and 2 Corinthians. Now, uh, as you're turning there, okay, Uh, We're going to pick up in chapter six. Uh, I want you to understand that this book was first a letter written about 2,000 years ago to some new followers of Jesus who were trying to figure out what living uh, by faith really looked like and what that meant for them because they lived in this city called Corinth that was just infatuated with sex, okay? The entire economy of Corinth and and the entire culture was completely built uh, upon this idea of of sex. Now, believe it or not, Corinth was one of the only cities in the ancient Greek world that had a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love, relationships, beauty, and pleasure, okay? Okay. About once a year for an entire month, typically in the month of June, believe it or not, uh, the city of Corinth would basically shut down and they would host this festival called Aphrodisia. Okay, now Aphrodisia was uh, this month-long festival where they celebrated Aphrodite and uh, they would worship her and offer sacrifices by basically having sex with one another out in public. Strangers would be hooking up with other strangers and this was a very accepted practice back then, okay? And so these followers of Jesus are trying to figure out, okay, what, what do we do? Is this something that, that we participate in? Now, if you think about it, festivals tell you a lot about the city, right? I mean, we love food, so what do we have? We have the Nut Club Fall Festival every single, every single October, 
Well, they loved sex, so they had aphrodisia every June. You can tell a lot about the city by what they celebrate. And so these followers of Jesus were trying to uh, figure things out. Check out what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, as he addresses some questions and rumors that were starting to circulate the church. I have the right to do anything, you say, but, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Right, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so what we see happening here is Paul's addressing some of their questions about relationships and marriage and, and sexuality. And so he begins with this simple idea that our bodies ultimately belong to our creator. All people have been made in the image of God to reflect his glory Okay, now this idea was starting to really press in and, and challenge the, the Corinthians because that meant that they then had to reject the, the view that people of a lower class were just merely objects for pleasure. Right, the Greek philosopher Plato had a vast amount of influence upon the first century culture and, and church. His ideas led people to believe that the human body was irrelevant and didn't matter, okay? And so this led to legalized prostitution of women, slaves, and, and even children in the ancient world. And so the generation reading this letter for the very first time had been trained to, to use their body however they wanted, whatever felt right in the moment. And, in the next chapter, Paul compares sexual immorality to being like a fire that, that can end up burning us. And you see burns happen in our life when we start believing lies about the fire. And you see the lies that the first century church were dealing with and wrestling with are the very same lies that we have to address in our society today. The, the first lie that can end up burning us goes like this, sex is casual. All right, sex is casual. It, it's harmless. It, it's nothing but a, a physical act, right? I mean, it, it's, it's very casual. There, there's just not much more to it. And yet, we know that this, this isn't the case, and this is actually one of the reasons why we must, as a church, continually talk about sex in an open way, because if we don't, our natural curiosity, that void will then be filled with what we see, read, and learn from our, from our culture. Back in 2016, the Huffington Post said that the average age of a child viewing pornography for the very first time is 11 years old. And so if we aren't seeing God's design for marriage at its source, then where, where else can we talk about it? Where else can we learn about it? Now, science continues to show how sex is more than just a physical act. Uh, Dr. William Struthers was a, uh, is a um, uh, biopsychologist, and, and he did this study of what goes on in the mind when couples engage in sexual intercourse, and uh, come to find out, okay, uh, what happens in the mind, there's this chemical released called dopamine, okay, and what takes place inside the mind is the same thing that happens whenever a person gets addicted to cocaine and heroin, and so as dopamine is released in our brain, Okay, that not only increases the pleasure of the moment, but it also is the same chemical that helps form addictions inside of us. And so literally, as you were having sex, it is addicting you, uniting you to the very person that you are with. This explains why a recent study showed that two-thirds of men who hire prostitutes go back to the same person over and over and over again. 
It's more than a physical act. And, and you see, God designed it this way. It is to be the expression that addicts us, unites us to, to our spouse. Here's another lie that, that we tend to believe about sex. It'll, it'll lead us to be burned, but, but that is sex, sex is everything. Sex is everything. For many of us, sex controls us. It's all we think about it. In other words, sex is God for some. Now, here's the thing. The God that you worship, whatever or whoever that is, is what you think defines you. But you see, our source of idols are also the source of lies that we tend to believe. Now, for example, our culture wants to define people, wants to define us based upon our sexual preference. And so we flippantly refer to people as heterosexuals, homosexuals, transgender, straight, gay, bi, or, or lesbian. And you see, the problem with this is that we're, we're not created to find value in our desires or in what some, some things that, that may describe us. And when we reduce our identity down to a sexual preference, you see, we're essentially calling God a liar because he says that all people, first and foremost, have been made in his image and have value and significance. Now, because our culture is desperately trying to find wholeness and meaning in all the wrong places, the definition of tolerance has changed over the decades. Tolerance used to mean that we can respect one another, although we may not always agree. You may disagree with certain things that I've done or certain beliefs or opinions that I hold, but tolerance today means something completely different. It means that if you respect me, you must agree with everything that I do and every belief and opinion that I hold on to. okay? And if you don't, then that's hate speech, that's bigotry, right? And, and that means you don't, really, you don't really care about me. Therefore, our hypersensitivity, our hypersensitivity that's rooted in a false identity regarding sexuality has caused some churches to either respond by speaking hatefully in the name of truth when it comes to this issue, or some churches speak with approval, all right, in the name of love and acceptance, or what some churches do is they just avoid the topic at all costs and it just leaves a culture completely confused, which over time will end up with more people burned. But here at Crossroads, we believe that there has to be a better way. And one thing that we always try to do, regardless of what we're talking about, what we're teaching from, from up here, is that we hold high truth, but we also equally hold high grace. It's not either or, it's, it's both and. John, one of the closest friends of Jesus, introduced Christ in John chapter one by referring to him as somebody who is full of truth and grace. We need both. We need truth because truth shows us a better way to live. It reveals to us God's plan. But if you're like me, you can't always keep the truth, right? That, that's why we need grace. So truth exposes our need for a savior. It reveals our brokenness, which is precisely where grace comes into place. And so I want you to hear loud and clear that regardless of your relational status, whatever your sexual preference may be, no matter what your past looks like, you are welcome here. We love you. We care for you. You, 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 you are accepted here at Crossroads. But one of my, <clears throat> don't clap yet. <laughs> but one of my concerns, one of my concerns is that sometimes we can talk so much about how we're all broken and that we're all sinful that, that, we, that we really forget who God is and his holiness, okay? And so oftentimes we shout grace, but we whisper repentance. And, and so I don't want this to be a bait and switch whatsoever. All right, 
Homosexuality is not something that we as a church support nor can we endorse. Don't blame us, blame Jesus. All right, because at the end of the day, I fear God's approval more than mankind's approval. And that's what this church is built upon. And so when it comes to the topic of homosexuality, we've got to draw some distinctions though, okay? There's a difference between desire and behavior. Okay, the desire for same-sex attraction, the desire, maybe, maybe you find yourself tempted by someone who is of the same gender, that, that, that in itself is not a sin, okay? Those impulses that you might have, your attraction to the same gender is not a sin. But what happens is when that desire or that temptation changes your behavior and it leads you to start acting on those behaviors, that, that's where sin happens, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember that box we threw up here? I'll throw it back up here on the screen. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talked about sexual immorality. All right, so basically that means that, that within this box, this represents the covenant of marriage. And, and inside this box is where God has, has planned and designed for, for all sexual activity to take place between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. Now, whenever we try to change that, that that's sexual immorality. Whenever we try to add someone to the picture or something, pornography, or maybe we, we take the, the guy out of the picture and replace it with a female, or we take the female out and put, put, put another man in here, same, same sex unions, that, that's that's sexual immorality. Whenever there's uh, sexual expression outside of the box before or after marriage, that, that falls short of what God says is, is right and true. And so again, just because you're tempted a certain way, that, that's not sinful, but it's when those desires lead to behavior, that's when we end up burned. Jesus' stepbrother James said it like this in chapter one of James. He said, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away from God. These desires give birth to sinful actions and, and when sin is allowed to grow, when it's fostered, when it's cultivated, it, it, give, it gives birth to death. And you see love, let me be really clear, love does not give us permission to dilute truth even when it appears offensive or it's invasive. Many churches that seem progressive and open have simply softened the message and from an eternal perspective, that's anything but loving. Or sometimes what you need to hear and what I need to hear isn't what I want to hear, but that shouldn't change what needs to be said. Or sometimes what you need to hear isn't what you want to hear, but, but that shouldn't change what needs to be said. Sex is something that's extremely powerful. And you see, the measure of pleasure that it can bring is also the measure of destruction that it can occur if we're not careful. Again, the metaphor that Paul used is fire, I don't know about you, but on a cold winter night, there's nothing I love more than when a fire is roaring in my fireplace, okay? But all it takes is for one ember to spark and to shoot out of the fireplace and to land in the wrong place, and the next thing I know, my, my house is on fire. Now, the Lord didn't, make, uh, didn't have to make sex pleasurable. He did, in case you didn't know that. It's a gift that reveals his goodness King Solomon actually refers to it as a fountain of blessing that brings about satisfaction in our life. And honestly, for many years, the church has had it wrong about sex. I was reading this past week that for about 600 years in the early church, the church distributed this calendar to all couples. And on this calendar, there were approved days for sexual intercourse to take place between a husband and wife. How they determined what days were appropriate, I don't know. I would have loved to have been a part of that meeting, though. 
All right, on this calendar, come to find out, 40 days before Christmas, we're off limits. 40 days before Easter, we're off limits as well. As if you needed another reason to dread the holidays, you know? The weekends, you couldn't, you couldn't sleep with your spouse because Friday was when Jesus died. Saturday was Sabbath. Sunday was when Jesus came back to life, okay? So when it was all said and done, when the church distributed this calendar, there were only about 40 approved days for a husband and wife to uh, freely engage sexually with one another. And so when the church made it to Europe around the medieval times, they, they basically washed their hands of sex completely, walked away from it and said, we, we don't want anything to do with this. It's gross, it's dirty, it's shameful. And precisely at that moment, culture picked it up and said, okay, you don't want it, we'll take it from here. And, and you see, ever since then, God has been wanting to reclaim intimacy because it was his idea from the beginning. And it's something that is good, something that is holy, and, and it's something that he has designed and intended for us to experience. What's the purpose of sex? Well, let me say it like this. Sex is a gift intended to symbolize and express emotional, physical, and spiritual oneness between a husband and wife. All right, when we hear that term sexual intimacy, we immediately think of a physical act, right? But from a biblical perspective, it's actually a word that carries a lot more meaning. And, and so I want you to imagine that there is a uh, dashboard, okay, maybe the dashboard in your car, and there are three different gauges in that dashboard, and the dashboard is just, we're going to refer to as sexual intimacy. The, the first gauge it is physical intimacy, and that represents um, intercourse between a husband and wife, any kind of sexual activity. That, that second gauge, okay, that, that is what we would call emotional intimacy, one of the most frequent Hebrew words used to describe intimacy between a husband and wife in the first half of the Bible, it goes back to this Hebrew word dod, and it, and it simply uh, conveys the idea, and it literally means the mingling together of souls. And the third gauge is spiritual intimacy. All right, as you run after Jesus, you're bringing, you're, bringing your family, you're bringing your family along. You're making sure that you, you, your wife is being loved and taken care of. You're, you're respecting your husband. You're growing together in your trust with Jesus. Skip over to chapter seven and pick up with me in verse one as Paul explains this a little bit more. This is the good stuff. <clears throat> he says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring and it's everywhere, you can't get away from it, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Right here, Paul's bringing clarity about some rumors and questions from people in, in this church. Evidently, some had heard this rumor that even married couples, if they truly love Jesus, they wouldn't have sex with one another. And Paul's saying that's that's just not true. That, 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 that doesn't make you more spiritual. That's nothing but legalism. Or we read later on that, that both marriage and singleness, believe it or not, are actually gifts from God. Right, the point of marriage and singleness is the exact same thing, and that is to know Jesus more. What do I mean by that? Well, singleness frees you to serve Jesus like Paul, while marriage helps you become more like Jesus. All right, in verse two, Paul encourages couples to, to serve one another in the bedroom. The possessive language used to describe a healthy bond between a, a husband and wife conveys this idea of unity. And ultimately, every problem, if you think about it, every problem that you and your wife, you and your, your husband, or, or maybe the, the, that you're having in, in the house is symptomatic of lacking intimacy somewhere along the way. 
Right, the way you approach your marriage, in other words, is perfectly designed to give you the results that you keep on getting. And so what I want us to do is I want us to get really practical as we walk through this test, te- <laughs> text, all right, and ask ourselves some questions in order to challenge one another, okay? Now, as these questions are thrown up here on the screen, I want you to either write them down, okay, or pull out your phone and take a picture of them. And what you're going to be tempted with is to hear or listen or, or read these questions through the lens or perspective of your spouse, Okay. No pointing fingers, no giving each other elbows, okay? You can't change him, you can't change her, all right? The imperfection of your spouse really isn't the issue. So what can you own? Here's the first question. Is your spouse one of many or or your one and only? Is your spouse one of many or is your spouse your one and only? There are actually many ways that you can cheat on your husband or, or wife. Unfaithfulness can sometimes happen in the form of, of busyness, hobbies, distractions, isolation, escaping from the home. And this may lead your spouse to believe that he or she is secondary and is just one of many for you. All right, do, do you work so hard during the day that when you come home in the evenings, you've depleted all of your energy and you're just giving your wife leftovers? You sometimes drift off and think about, man, what, what, what would be different about my life today if I had stayed with him, if I had stayed with her, if, if we ended up getting married? What, what, what kind of, uh, how, how great would my marriage be if I, if I married somebody different? Did I marry the wrong person? Is, is your spouse frustrating to you because maybe you're comparing him or her to uh, one of your parents, to some standards that, that you formed uh, from a childhood, in a childhood? This past week, my father-in-law, Dave, picked up our four-year-old daughter, Vera, and took her back to Louisville with him uh, because she spent a few days with her grandparents. And uh, at some point on their drive between Evansville and Louisville, um, they got a surprise visit from a police officer, okay? Now, right after the police officer pulled my father-in-law, Dave, over, okay, uh, he goes back to his cruiser and gets his information. And as the police officer is back there, Dave pulled out his phone and just happened to capture a video and what Vera was doing in this moment. Ch- check this video out. What's that, hon? I need to get pulled over. Well, I wanted you to get to meet a police officer. Was he a nice man? He was very nice, wasn't he? What do you think he's going to do back there? Can you see his lights flashing back there? Yeah, what do you think he's going to do? Give us a ticket. Yeah, has your dad ever gotten a ticket? Oh, yeah. He has? <laughs> You're kidding me. He speeds so? One time. One time. Well. <laughs> Her reaction isn't very normal for a four-year-old, okay? He, here, here's why. When a parent gets pulled over or someone who is driving gets pulled over from a toddler's perspective, they immediately wonder, are are you going to jail, right? But for some reason, she's very calm and collected in this moment. All right, why is Vera so calm? Because she's used to being in this circumstance before. Her mother has a very heavy foot, all right? Learned it from her dad, evidently, right? 
Now, my father-in-law and I have a great relationship. We have a very similar personality. We both love humor. We both love people. We're both pastors, okay? And I think that there's some truth to the old adage that daughters end up marrying a guy that, that is very similar to their dad's growing up. And if that's really true for us, it probably explains why my mother-in-law was crying so much on our wedding day. <laughs> But from the beginning, God said, hey, when you get married, as a husband and wife come together, you, you leave behind your family of origin, you leave your father and mother, and you become one. You, you leave and then you cleave, you, you unite, you, you work on this whole idea of intimacy. So basically, after you say, I do, your spouse becomes the most important person in your life, becomes the most important thing in your life. Oneness can happen while something is maybe still distracting the husband or wife from focusing on each other. And you know what, your, your home will never be what it can be if your spouse always feels secondary to someone or something else. Look at verses three and four. Paul says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. All right, so what, what Paul is continuing, let's, let's go to the next slide here. But he yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but, but yields it to his wife. All right, so the call to marry is really a call to sacrifice and to focus on how well your spouse's needs are being met. Now, he, l- l- let, me just, let me just challenge you with something, okay? Marriage can be extremely frustrating, and if you are counting on your boyfriend, girlfriend, or your fiance to make you whole and to always make you happy, you are in for a rude wake-up call. Because not only are you broken, and not only is he or she broken, but when you mix two people together, you don't become whole. When you're counting on that other person to fulfill every need and desire you have, you just end up more broken. So the second challenge for us goes like this, how can you focus more on giving than getting? How can you focus more on, on giving than, than getting? What would change in your marriage if you really believe that your spouse doesn't exist to, to meet your every need? You see, nothing will identify you more with Jesus than when you are called to forgive the unforgivable in your husband or wife. And let me just say this, that never will you have to forgive your spouse of something that is greater than what Jesus has already forgiven you of. And so this is a call to, to serve one another. I think sexual sin is actually more prevalent within marriage than, than we even get it credit towards. What do I mean by that? Well, oftentimes we withhold emotional, physical, or spiritual intimacy from one another, and that only sets our spouses up for temptation. And so the question is, how are you protecting him or her from temptation? Let me read you this uh, illustration that originated with Dr. Uh, Willard Harley that, that can help women understand a man's desire and need for, for sex. He says this, suppose there was a stool with a glass of water on it. The husband was next to the stool where he could easily reach the water himself. The wife is next to the husband, but she is immobilized and can't quite reach the water. The wife turns to her husband and says, would you please pour me a glass of water? I am so thirsty. The husband responds by saying, well, you know what? I don't really feel like it. I, I, I'm not in the mood, maybe in a couple hours. The wife says, but I'm, I'm really thirsty now. The, the husband says, well, it's been a long day. I, I'm too tired to get you a glass of water right now. And so the next day rolls around and the wife, having gone without water, says again, would you please give me a glass of, of water now? The husband says, why do you always have to ask for water? I'll give you a glass when I'm in the mood. 
And the wife can feel her temperature rising. She's not happy. She's thirsty. And the only person who can give her water is her husband. And so she begins to demand it. And the husband glares at his wife and says, you're not going to get any water when you ask with an attitude like that. So the next day, the husband finally says, okay, here's your water, but drink it fast. And don't be telling me that you're thirsty again tomorrow. And so the wife drinks, but she does so with bitterness and frustration. And this illustration can really be used both ways. When we withhold a need that our spouse has, it's, it's selfish. That's why Paul says this next in verses five through six. He says, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. He says, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not, not as a command. Now, if for some reason you are withholding some kind of intimacy from your husband or wife for a reason, at the very least, you should communicate why, be, be open with him or her. But typically when we withhold things from our spouse, it's because we're afraid or we feel judged. And, and if it's been a long time since you and your spouse have had sex, then it's evident that one of you probably doesn't feel safe with the other person. And so my last question for you goes like this. What does your depth of transparency say about your level of intimacy? Right, what, what does your depth of transparency say about your level of intimacy? You see, the height of intimacy in your marriage will never exceed the depth of transparency that you're willing to bring to the table. And yet so often, what we end up doing is we hide things out of fear, out of shame, out of guilt, out of insecurities, right? But sometimes the hardest thing to talk about is the reality of something going on that your spouse knows nothing about. I heard this past week uh, about a doctor who sat an elderly couple down and talked through the, the bad prognosis uh, that the husband had because of his, his terminal illness. And afterwards, the doctor asked to speak privately with the wife. And so the husband left the room. Okay, again, he's the sick one. He leaves the room, goes out to the waiting room. And so the doctor says to the wife, okay, I've got some good news for you and I've got some bad news for you. The bad news is your husband probably has about one week to live. She says, okay, but what's the good news? And the doctor said, well, the good news is that if you really pamper him, if you bring him breakfast in bed, if you cook for him three times a day, if you make love to him like you did your first year of marriage, I bet he can live another five to six years. And so she left the uh, exam room with the doctor. She walked out into the waiting room and the husband immediately asked, well, what did the doctor say? The wife responded by saying, he said that you're going to die within a week. You know, sometimes we would rather keep to ourselves, we'd rather not sacrifice, because at the end of the day, we're, 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 really, we're really thinking about ourselves rather than our, than our spouse. And maybe the one thing that's keeping your marriage from firing on all cylinders is, is that you're withholding something from your spouse. Maybe it's physical, but, but guys, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's verbal, maybe, Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe, maybe you've been passive. Here in a couple of days, um, Savannah and I are going to celebrate 10 years of, of marriage. And uh, uh, so many of you, that's not that impressive because so many of you have been married for a lot longer than that. And um, I'm excited because in a couple of weeks, we're, we're going to go away for about a week. No kids, no cell phone. So if you need me, contact somebody else, okay? Not <laughs> 
But I got to tell you, the times that I'm most attracted to Savannah, it, it might surprise you. I, I, it has a lot to do with her beauty, but, but there's also this other side of her that makes me feel really close to her. And it, it always catches me off guard. Here's how it plays out. There are moments when I withhold something or I'm trying to fix something on my own or I'm dealing with an issue, I've got some problem and I think that I'm, I'm, I'm hiding it from her but really she can uh, see it the whole time. And one of the reasons why I fail to share with her in those moments is because of really shame or insecurities or I think she'll think less of me, I don't wanna be rejected, I don't wanna be ridiculed, right? Or uh, it, it, it's, it, it's coming out of this motivation of I'm not, I'm not good enough, I'm not measuring up and so I try to project this almost act and, and yet those, those few moments when I look back over the past 10 years and, and I get the courage to actually be vulnerable with her and I'm, I'm, I'm honest and I say, here's what I'm dealing with, here's the struggle or here's a sin that I just can't get over right now. I'm always surprised at the grace and the patience that she gives me. Because when I'm transparent with her, she just has this way of reminding me that I'm a good man and, and she, she sees me for who I'm becoming. And so ladies, maybe, maybe your husband hasn't been opening up to you because he, he doesn't know that you respect him. And let me just say that, that a guy will not open up with a woman whom he doesn't feel respects him. So how are you doing with that? And guys, you can't pull the passivity card any longer. Quit pointing fingers, quit blaming, quit saying, well, my dad, I, he wasn't around. He had to get up, whatever that may be. Look, at the end of the day, it now falls on you. It's time for you to take ownership and it's time for you to actually step towards the uncomfortable and for you to pursue your wife like you did whenever you were dating, okay? I know it doesn't come naturally for you, but what your wife is, is actually counting on you to do is to open up, to be vulnerable with her because that's the kind of connection that she needs. And, and so it, are you making it easy for your wife to follow? Are you taking taking the initiative, because my experience has been that, ladies, you, you really don't have an issue with following a man who, who actually takes the lead and makes sure that he is sacrificing for you and is making your life better and making your life easier and is laying down his life. Guys, how, how are you doing with this? One of the best things that, that you may be able to do for your marriage, and especially for those marriages right now that are on the rocks right now, is to simply ask for help. Right, to swallow your pride and say, hey, I, I don't know how we're gonna make it. Where do you go? What, what, what are you gonna do? Are you just gonna lay down, guys? Are you gonna keep fighting for your home? Are you gonna keep fighting for, for, for your marriage? Are you gonna hang on even when every bit of you wants to give up, wants to throw in the towel and make excuses? Can you keep fighting? And maybe the best way for you to keep fighting is to simply step out and ask for help. And so if that's where you're at, here's what I want you to do. Here in just a second, when we dismiss, I want you to remain seated, okay? And you can do this in two different ways. You can remain seated, and that'll alert some of our staff and some of our volunteers here and at West that, that you need prayer. And so we'll approach you and we'll just pray over you. We'll pray over your marriage. Okay, there's no shame in this. But, but if you need help, maybe that's not enough. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. I want you to pull out your phone and text CCC marriage to 25827. All right, we will follow up with you this week and connect you with our ministry called Marriage Mentors. Basically, these are men and women, a part of Crossroads who have been through some stuff in their life, who, who know exactly what you're going through and can help guide you along the way. Because you know what? It's one thing for your marriage to be on the rocks, and it's another to feel helpless because you just wondered, can anybody else identify with me? 
And so marriage, marriage mentors is our way of saying, hey, you're not in this alone, but let us help you. Let us help you take your, your next steps. And guys, it takes courage to do it. It takes a lot of courage to be transparent and vulnerable, but you know what? That may be the very thing, may be the very thing that, that keeps your house standing strong. Let me pray. God, I know that there are a lot of marriages in here that wonder, are we gonna make it another week? Are we gonna make it another year? Are we still gonna be together? And, and God, there's something about marriage that, that reminds us that we are more, blo- we are more broken that, than we even uh, could fathom, and yet it's also possible to be loved more than, than we ever thought was, was imaginable. And, and marriage helps us understand, God, just how you see us. Because even when you had every right to reject us, even when you had every right to, to throw in the towel, even when you had every right to say, you know what, you knew better, we talked about this, I'm done. Never once, Jesus, have you served us with divorce papers. And so may that love and that grace and the forgiveness that you've given us compel us to, to lay down our lives for our spouses. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen.